This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. Happy Halloween. I'm Libby Snymer. A new survey finds the bank of mom and dad is giving out more money than ever as the average gift for a first-time home buyer hits $82,000. And many stroke victims are waiting too long to go to the hospital because of the pandemic. We'll have a refresher on the signs and symptoms. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There's a landmark proposal in the U.S. that would make hearing aids available without a prescription. The long-awaited move by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is aimed at making the devices more affordable and accessible to millions of Americans living with hearing loss. It comes four years after Congress passed a law requiring the FDA to establish a category of over-the-counter hearing aids. The devices would not require a prescription or a fitting by an audiologist. They would be sold online and at retail stores for adults with mild to moderate hearing loss. A generic antidepressant may reduce COVID hospitalizations. Fluvoxamine was chosen to be studied due to its anti-inflammatory properties. The inexpensive drug curbed the number of COVID patients ending up in hospital by 30% in Canadian-led trials. If confirmed by more research, the drug would be one of the most effective and convenient ways to treat the virus outside of pricey new monoclonal antibodies that typically need to be administered in hospital. It confirms smaller earlier studies that had shown promise for the drug which is normally used to treat obsessive-compulsive disorder. Cigarette sales in the U.S. climbed last year amid the pandemic, marking the first annual increase in two decades. Major manufacturers sold almost 204 billion cigarettes in 2020, up from 203 billion the year before. Sales of smokable products jumped in the early days of the pandemic, as consumers made bulk purchases and negative publicity pushed older smokers back to cigarettes from vaping products. But according to the Federal Trade Commission's cigarette report, there are signs the shift might not last. The U.S. has issued the first passport with the gender marker X to include non-binary, intersex, and gender non-conforming individuals. The Biden administration promised the change so the documents would be more inclusive. The option will be offered to all passport applicants early next year when the forms are updated. The move comes after a federal discrimination lawsuit from a Colorado resident who argued it was impossible to get a passport with their accurate gender because male and female were the only options. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. 
Have you helped an adult child buy a home by giving them a large cash gift? With housing prices through the roof, two-thirds of first-time buyers say the bank of mom and dad was the main source of their down payment. And according to a new report from CIBC, Canadian parents kicked in a total of $10 billion last year, with the average gift in Toronto topping 130000 I talked with CIBC economist Benjamin Tall for the story behind these numbers. We know that uh, the Canadian housing market in general, in Toronto, Vancouver in particular, are basically unaffordable. So people are asking, how do they come up with this money, all those people buying those multi-million dollars house? And part of the answer is, well, they call their parents and they get a nice gift. And this gift has been rising in size over the past five, six years, especially during the pandemic. Now, uh, let's drill down on the numbers in some of the places we're familiar with. So in Ontario, here in Toronto, what is the average gift? We know that roughly uh, 30%, almost one third of people are getting a a gift for first-time home buyers. And about one in ten, about nine, ten percent are uh, sick, you know, mover helpers that also getting a gift. Uh, and uh, the average gift is um, over one hundred thousand in Ontario, I believe, and uh, in Toronto is much, it is much more, roughly one sixty or something like that. So it's a significant amount of money, and that's something that again makes a difference between renting or owning. And it's not the only way that uh, people give uh, gifts. Uh, also, we see more and more parents co-signing the mortgage, basically assuming the debt in case of default. And we are seeing a lot of investors uh, buying condominiums, not for themselves, but for their kids 10 years ago, because uh, the answers that we are getting is, I want my son, my daughter to have a chance to live in Toronto uh, 10 years from now, because Toronto will be totally unaffordable. And you know what? They're right. In Vancouver, for mover uppers, the average gift is 340000 That's a lot of money. Wow. <laughs> I'm looking at these numbers, even for the national average, uh, the average size of a gift for a first-time buyer, 82000 128000 for uh, a mover-up buyer. Uh, so how wealthy do these people who are giving the gifts have to be? That's a lot of money. We know that the, pa- the parents are baby boomers. They are well off, relatively speaking, compared to their parents. In addition, they, the baby boomers, the parents, the givers, they are very, very old parents. So they are getting their money as inheritance. And I think that this inheritance, which is hundreds of billions of dollars, is simply skipping a generation and getting to the kids of the baby boomers. I think that's what's happening. And there was this sense of urgency to get into the market during the pandemic. Parents told their kids, you know what, interest rates are so low, get into the market and we will help you. And that's why we have seen a significant increase in gifting. And also remember... As a society, we are all sitting on a mountain of cash because nobody was spending anything for almost a year and a half. But income was still there. Jobs were there, especially for those uh, baby boomers, the parents, because this has been, as you know, the most asymmetrical crisis ever, where it was very, very uh, deep, but very narrow. The vast majority of Canadians did not feel the um, pandemic uh, financially. And therefore, uh, we, have, we are sitting on roughly $200 billion of excess cash And some of this cash is finding its way to help kids. These people who are making such big gifts to their kids, uh, are they, you know, five percenters, ten percenters? (laughs) Where do they sit? I really don't know. We didn't look into it, but I assume that they are very well off. Uh, And quite frankly, that's an issue because what it means, quite frankly, 
is that the wealth inequality in Canada is widening because when you get a gift, first of all, uh, it makes you a home buyer as opposed, as opposed to a renter, and therefore you are able to participate in any home price appreciation. Also, every dollar going to the gift is reducing your uh, mortgage and therefore reducing your future interest payments on that mortgage, again, widening the gap. So there is no question about the fact that uh, gifting is widening the wealth inequality gap in Canada. You talked about them, uh, the homeowners, being able to participate in appreciation. A lot of people are saying it's a bubble, it's, it's, it's over the top. Uh, so what are the downside risks in terms of the housing market? The issue facing the Canadian real estate market in general, and, and, and Toronto in particular, and Ontario in particular, is lack of supply. We simply don't have enough supply. As long as that's the case, this market will not correct in a very significant way. Of course, there is a risk. If for some reason interest rates go up dramatically, as a society, we are much more uh, sensitive to the risk of higher interest rates, and that can derail the market. But I believe that over time, this market is so under supply that it's very difficult to see prices going down notably in a way that will make a situation very different. Does this mean that we are just in the place that other major world cities have been in for a long time, like New York or London with very expensive real estate? That's exactly it. It's New York, it's uh, London, it's Berlin. And you know what uh, the difference between those cities and ours? Is that there, rent is acceptable. A rental solution to the affordability crisis is acceptable. Basically, if you are in London or New York or Berlin and you are uh, 35 years old, you are married, you have two kids, and you are renting, nothing is wrong with you. That's the mentality that I believe we have to develop in uh, cities in Canada because rental activity must be part of the solution to the affordability crisis, and it is a crisis that we are facing. Okay, Benjamin Tal, thank you so much for that. A pleasure. Thank you. That was CIBC Deputy Chief Economist Benjamin Tall. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, how long would it take you to realize that you or a loved one was having a stroke? You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, giving you the opportunity to get involved and make your community a better place for seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. Like every other medical procedure, the treatment for stroke was set back because of the pandemic, with many patients waiting too long to go to the hospital. This week marked World Stroke Day, a good time to go over the signs, symptoms, and most of all, the timeline for ensuring a good recovery. I talked with Dr. Atif Zafar, director of the Comprehensive Stroke Program at St. Michael's Hospital. Every time the wave was coming in, we believe that many patients with mild to moderate stroke were deciding to stay in, just scared of coming to the hospital. So we saw our numbers go down to kind of 30-40% of, of what we typically see you know, in our emergency rooms, pretty much all big sites all across the world, all major cities. As the kind of wave, uh, the first wave went down, and similarly the second wave went down, we saw the numbers go up. So in, in the, at the end of the day, the overall volume was balanced out. But because 
the capacity uh, was an issue, right? As soon as the volume went up, it was so high that it was hard uh, for us to kind of manage that. Obviously, the patients were hurt more because now they were coming in um, when they were having the symptoms. Either they were too late after the onset or, uh, or the strokes were already too severe. Let's backtrack a little bit. What exactly is a stroke? I tell patients that it's kind of a heart attack for the brain. So there are two types of stroke, the clot type and the bleeding type. What are they called? So one is the ischemic stroke where, you know, when the, when the clot goes in and stops the blood from flowing to the brain, that's the ischemic stroke. And then there's a hemorrhagic stroke uh, where, you know, for one reason or the other, the blood vessel will rupture and cause bleeding and direct impact and damage to the brain. What are the different severities of stroke that people have and what causes the difference? There's this term that we normally use called a TIA or a mini stroke. That's kind of the mildest form, uh, I would say, of a stroke where patients will have weakness on one side of the body or they will lose their speech for a few seconds to a few minutes, but then they will recover. This is called a TIA, a transient ischemic stroke uh, attack or a mini stroke. Um, and again, this is really the time when we expect the patients would come into the emergency room or to their nearby clinic because it's kind of a warning sign that a big stroke is about to happen. Then there are strokes that are happening in patients based on how much of an of the part of the brain is being impacted. So if it's a small part, a small blood vessel that's been affected, patients will have smaller symptoms, less severe symptoms. The severe form of a stroke on the other end of the spectrum will be that, you know, I won't be able to speak or understand or comprehend. I will be paralyzed on one side of my body. It won't move. Uh, I will have severe facial paralysis on one side. I will have severe speech problems or balance problems or vision problems. What are the signs or symptoms that you are having or are about to have a stroke? It's called FAST or in the U.S., be fast. Um, and, and what it means is that there will be face will droop with the F. A will have the arm will be weak. So if you lift your arms in front of you, one side, one arm will kind of drop down. And then S stands for speech. Uh, where the speech will either be slurred or I'll be having a hard time expressing myself or, or really uh, my language will be affected. And then the last letter is T in that fast where T stands for time, where you have to come to the hospital in a timely way. Now, we also ha are, have started to educating our patients about the, the BE part, which is the balance in the eye. So if you have sudden loss of your balance and you have sudden loss of your eye movements or your vision, those can also be signs of stroke and you need to seek urgent medical attention in those cases. I gather that there are drugs that can reverse a stroke, but there's a real time limit. This is really a great question and really a game changer when it comes to stroke outcomes. We've had patients who would come in the hospital in a very timely way because they called 911 or the family called 911, and they came in within one hour or two hours. The first hour is actually the golden hour, and as a stroke neurologist, I've you know, yet to see a patient who was completely disabled if they presented within one hour of a stroke. So that's, that's how significant time is. You're right. We can give clockbuster medications within four and a half hours if you come in. Many patients present beyond that. So we cannot offer that medication anymore, which will help us in dissolving the clot. Now, nowadays, if you're up to 24 hours, we can offer you, and if you are having a large stroke, we can offer you a procedure called the thrombectomy where, you know, we can go in and pull the clot out. Um, and, and that's for moderate to large size strokes. But 
for all these things, for all the treatments available, what we got to know is that every one minute, so after I have a stroke, the stroke has happened, every passing one minute, I'm going to lose about 2 million neurons. So every minute I'm going to that much, which is why time is of significance. So the sooner I'm going to come in, the less the brain damage I'll have because I'll be able to get the treatment, the two treatments I told you, in a very timely way. I'm looking at the Government of Canada's website, and the latest numbers seem to be for 2012 when there were nearly 750,000 stroke survivors. So uh, what are the outcomes? How? What is the quality of life for those people? We have about 50,000 new strokes happening every year, and 22%. So one in five patients who suffers a stroke will probably die within the first year of having a stroke. Uh, so, so it is a pretty disabling disease. Now, 20% of patients can have good outcome. Uh, so these are the patients who are coming in in a timely way and they're getting treated uh, and then they can go back to living you know, uh, an independent life again. So th- these are the two ends of the spectrum. What are the risk factors and, and uh, what's the demographic of most people who have strokes? It still is that it's an old uh, people's disease, but we're seeing more and more patients, uh, you know, having stroke at the young age. And I'll give you some examples, you know, alcohol, lifestyle, right? More people are now doing desk jobs, so they're not mobilizing enough. Uh, so obesity is kind of coming into play. Uh, diet is being affected uh, with the lifestyle exercise comes into play. So I think all of those things are, are kind of, uh, making an impact uh, on, on why the demographic from old patients having a stroke to now more and more younger people having a stroke. What we're seeing is that the minority uh, demographics um, is being affected uh, by stroke more so, and, and the stroke severity is more uh, in, in, in the low equity groups, uh, for example, or the minority groups, for example. The, the, the risk factors are, are, are range from, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, obesity, lack of exercise, uh, obstructive sleep apnea, smoking. Uh, these are kind of the big ones. Uh, high blood pressure, you know, continues to be the biggest one, the biggest impact factor. If people are taking care of their blood, blood pressure, the risk of having future stroke goes down tremendously. Dr. Atif Zafar, thanks so much. My pleasure. That was Dr. Atif Zafar of St. Michael's Hospital. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.